I am very sorry to break up this good conversation. <laughs> we welcome you here. I'm Gail Crow with World Christian Broadcasting. Our president, Andy Baker, is right over there. Uh, <clears throat> we are just glad to have each of you here. Uh, on the program, you read that uh, Henry Hufford was to be here, and he was. If you know Henry, you know that for the past five years, his wife has had uh, leukemia, and she went like this, and then she went like this, and stayed that way for a while, and then just a while back, sort of started down again, and she had uh, bone marrow transplant, and um, doing pretty well, <clears throat> but uh, Henry obviously didn't want to leave her, but that was no problem because they have a daughter in town, Elizabeth, who could take care of her. Well, suddenly Elizabeth was diagnosed with breast cancer oh, I didn't and, know that. <clears throat> yes, and was operated on, and so she's in no shape to take care of Jane. So, I ask our <clears throat> very capable speaker, Dan McVeigh, if he would be willing to take the whole hour. And <clears throat> if you know Dan, you know I could have asked him to take six hours or ten hours or whatever, <laughs> and he would have been just as happy to do that. <clears throat> Dan McVeigh and his wife Brenda have lived, studied, and worked in Africa, Asia, Europe, and North America, and continue to move as the Spirit fills their sails. <clears throat> Having lived in exotic places like Ghana, China, and England, they are now enjoying life and exploring the mysteries of faith and cosmos on a mesa in a very strange, <clears throat> excuse, a very strange land known as Texas. <laughs> Dan is an adjunct lecturer at ACU in world religions, Islamic studies, and African history, as well as working with ACU's international studies programs in Europe and Africa. Let's, uh, let's begin with a prayer. Thank you, Lord, <clears throat> so much for the opportunity of working on a worldwide basis. Uh, it's just amazing, uh, those of us, uh, not just in World Christian Broadcasting, but in these various uh, parachurch organizations and, and people who are on mission teams in um, of the church in various churches uh, to have our eyes open like they have been and we're just so grateful that Dan is here and is willing to open our eyes even further as he talks about his experiences and also the, the challenges of work throughout the world in Jesus we pray amen well, good afternoon. Good to see everyone here this afternoon. Um, as Gail said, I could talk for hours and hours. I'm not sure how to take that. <laughs> I'm sure my students would uh, tell you that's probably true, and uh, especially those who tend to fall asleep during class sometimes. Um, we do want to give our thanks to to our Heavenly Father for giving us life, health, especially Brother Alex with your little knee problem. Thankful that you're able to be up and about. Thank you. 
Uh, it's good to see faces that I haven't seen for some time, and uh, we do thank God for the measure of health that he's given us and want to remember the Hufford family. I'm thankful to uh, Pepperdine University, as always, for this good program, Mike Cope and his team, and especially uh, World Christian Broadcasting for this opportunity. Today's topic, how can I, how can I possibly know what the Holy Spirit is doing? <laughs> you know, what is the Holy Spirit doing in Africa? Well, we observe, we watch, we look, we think, we discern, and then we throw up our hands and say, hmm, because how can anyone really know what the Spirit of God is doing? Uh, you know, the, the passage that comes to mind, I'm, I'm sure for all of us, is John chapter 3, when Jesus said, the, 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 the Spirit is like the blowing of the wind. You don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it's going. And then he says something so interesting, because I've, I've missed this, I think, most of my life. And I think, well, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But Jesus said, so it is of everyone who is born of the Spirit. That's you and me. That's people like us. Well, I've all, my wife has always told me that she has no idea what I'm up to most of the time. And so maybe now I can say it's the Spirit of God. <laughs> because we can't know what the Spirit is doing. And that includes those who are born of the Spirit. Uh, my ignorance grows exponentially the older I get. Uh, but one thing is very obvious, and, and if there's any takeaway for, for us today from this session, to the glory of God, I would pray that it would be this, that we all recognize what God is doing and has been doing for some time now in the continent of Africa in terms of the spread of the gospel and certain maybe keys to the gospel success. As, as we measure success, as we might uh, examine it or seek to discern it. And that is that there are shifting centers of gravity in the world taking place, in the, in the spiritual world, in the world of the gospel. Um, the Western world, Europe, North America, has been the, the center of, in our minds, especially those of us in the West, you know, that we have been the center of gravity for the Christian religion for centuries. And historically, that case can be argued. But without a doubt, those centers have shifted, and we are in a non-Western Christian world today. And that is going to increase and increase. And Africa plays a big role in that, which I hope we can, uh, we can talk about uh, some this afternoon. One interesting aspect of African history and Christian history is to realize that Africa is the first home for Christianity outside of Palestine and Jerusalem, in a sense. Now, we have the great work of the Apostle Paul and the spread of the gospel through Asia Minor and Greece and that. We're very familiar with that. And I'm not, not wishing to take away from that at all. But to complement that, to add to it, Egypt was one of the first centers of the Christian faith. Uh, according to Christian tradition, uh, Mark you know, set up his ministry there. And in the first century, the gospel messengers penetrated all the way up the Nile so that by the second and third centuries some of the strongholds of Christianity were found in the upper regions of the Nile lands that would know, be known in history as Aksum and Nubia which we know more familiarly as Ethiopia as it would go deeper and deeper and deeper the areas where the Queen of Sheba came from come on in come on in Hi. Oh, let's get a hug. Thank you. Yes. 
Well, that's all right. People will think I'm on profit. I'm, I'm on profit to bring you here. <laughs> going around. <laughs> Hi, lady. Commission yes, profit. come on in, come on in. So Africa, in, in a sense, is we can describe as, as some of the newest area or territory, you might say, for the Christian religion, talking from a, an historical standpoint. But it's also one of the oldest homes of Christianity. So we have this amazing blend of the ancient uh, aspects, one of the birthplaces of Christian theology, the great schools of Alexandria, which of course have their roots, uh, all acknowledgement to our Greek friends here, which Alexandria has its roots in, in Greece, but the great Greek philosophers Socrates and Plato said, if you want knowledge, go to Egyptos, go to Egypt, yeah, go to Egypt. That's it. They said that's where the true knowledge originates and true religions originate. So Africa has some of the oldest as well as some of the newest and youngest aspects of the Christian religion. This is a, uh, a map simply showing some of the decadal growth rates. The, the red color meaning significant growth from 1970 to 2020, a 50-year period. So the darker red uh, colors indicate nations that have high growth rates of Christianity. Obviously, you see China, parts of Central Asia. And look how many nations in Africa are ranked there. The orange-colored countries are those that have seen significant growth during this 50-year period. Again, just a chart to, to get a broad picture of how quickly and how aggressively Christianity has been growing in Africa. So it is an ancient center of Christian faith as well as a new center of Christian faith. In 1970, 70% of all evangelicals, in 1970, 70% of all evangelicals lived in Europe and North America. 1970, less than 50 years ago. And at that same time, 1970, about 11% of evangelicals lived in Latin America and in Africa. Very low percentage. Now, less than 50 years later, the percentage of evangelicals, evangelical Christians, a broad painting, a broad grouping, the percentage of evangelicals who live in Africa alone, well, let's go ahead and add Latin America, I guess, would run somewhere in the neighborhood of 45 to now almost 50%. Whereas the percentage living in Europe and North America has dropped significantly. It has dropped about 60%. So it's down to less than 30%. Now we're all aware of this. Um, some programs like this lectureship and so forth sometimes have themes of, you know, how to get churches to grow. How do we reach the millennials? You know, how do we keep ourselves relevant and alive and speaking to the culture around us? There are many, many factors. I don't begin to try to say that I can understand what's going on or why it's going on. But when we're talking about the work of the Spirit, the movement, the shifting of the Spirit, which I hope we can explore a little bit this afternoon, um, if we just stand back and look at what we might call this, this macro picture, the big picture, like this, and the percentages can be debated and argued, you know, but just the big picture, and, and I'm a big picture person. The more I study history, the more I get to where 
I want to analyze things from, from a broader perspective. You can't escape the conclusion that in the last, really, 100 years, but especially the last <coughs> 40 to 50 years, there are movements and shifts and tectonic plates shifting in the centers of the Christian faith. Now, some people, some Westerners, some of us, especially in North America, hear this and we, we almost want to go, boo-hoo, boo-hoo, what's wrong? What's happened to us? We're losing our, our center. We're not the pillars anymore. Well, there is a negative aspect to it, in a way. But I think we should rather look at it from the positive standpoint of this is a movement of God's spirit. This is his, his working out the times and the seasons for the nations. Look at all the people he's bringing to Athens from Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, the Kurdish people and others coming in who otherwise, how would they have come to know the gospel? Well, in some way maybe, but in the numbers that you're seeing them and the way you're able to serve them there. And, and other parts of the world were seeing similar things, which we'll delve into. I've spent most of the last 37 years living and studying about West African societies, living in and studying about them. And particularly my field has been focused on, a field of study focused on the points of contact between traditional African societies and Islamic and Christian influences, especially the last few centuries. I was privileged to live in Ghana during the very formative decades of the 1980s, 1990s, and early 2000s. That gives you an idea of how old I am. Um, I'll be 60 in a couple of weeks. But what was significant about the 1980s and 1990s and early 2000s was, in Africa, was there was this convergence of emerging nation states, the post-colonial period of independent nation states in Africa. Religious innovation and historical analysis all came together. And this is truly a momentous period of human history. One of the most amazing realities of our own time over this past century or so, and I know, I know none of us are approaching a century in age, but one of the most amazing statistics that's emerging is that a little over 100 years ago, less than 10% of Africans, all Africans, North uh, north of the Sahara as well as sub-Saharan, less than 10% of Africans were Christians a hundred years ago. Now, even with Africa's exploding population and a strong Arabic-Islamic north, the percentage of Africans who are Christians would easily reach 40%. Yeah. What is more, Africans make up one out of every four Christians in the world today. Mm. One out of every four Christians is an African. The same ratio as the USA, Canada, Mexico, and Brazil combined. combined. Mm -hmm. Yes. And this, about the same percentage as in Europe. If present trends continue, it is possible that by 2050, Africa will be the new home of the majority of all Christians in the world. Wow. Forming well over 50, even some say as high as 70% of Christians in the world will be found in Africa more than all other continents combined by 2100. It might also be the home of the majority Muslims by that time as well. Uh, Islam is growing in Africa very rapidly, and this is one of the greatest periods of growth of Christian faith in history. Christianity has, according to some historians, has never grown this quickly anywhere. 
even with the records in the book of Acts of you know, turning the world upside down and thousands here and thousands there, this hundred year period that we're, that we're still in, stretching now to might as well say 150 year period, never seen growth like this, ever. Well, and this is not just evangelicals or Protestants. It's Roman Catholics, it's the Coptic Church, it's the Ethiopian Church, the various Orthodox churches, every church is growing. The indigenous African churches are growing. Uh, every, every stripe, every color you can imagine, it's across the board. Well, let's think a moment about African history and where this is coming from. In modern times, Africa's relationship with Europe and America has primarily been based on oppression and externalization, slavery, colonialism. Sometimes we think of the colonial period for Africa, particularly say about 1850 to the 1960s, as sort of a benign period where Europeans, to a much lesser extent Americans, but primarily Europeans like the British, the French, the Portuguese, the Belgians, um, colonized sub-Saharan Africa in particular, but also North Africa. That this was sort of a benign spreading of European influence and sort of bringing Africa into the modern world. Well, Africa was brought into the modern world through colonialism, but it was not a smooth journey. It was not a fair journey. It was a corrupt journey. We'll talk about that in just a moment. The history of slavery itself, I'm sure we're all aware of. It's estimated that not less than 20 million Africans were taken out of Africa uh, into not just the Western slave routes into Brazil, uh, the Caribbean, and North America. But there were four main slave routes. There were not only the European triangular trade as we know it, but actually only 6% of Africans that were brought out went to North America. Only 6%. Those that came to the West, you know which country the majority? Brazil. Almost 40% of all African slaves. That's why Brazil today has the highest African-American population of any country and the largest African descendant population of any part of the world outside of Africa itself. But there were three other slave routes. There was the Trans-Sahara, the multiple Trans-Sahara slave routes that had been going on for centuries before the Europeans started their slave trading. There were two other routes out of Eastern Africa as well, the Swahili slave coast as it was called, Tanzania, Kenya, countries like that today, Somalia. And then there was the slave route up through Egypt into the Middle East. David Livingston, the famous missionary, British missionary of the mid-1800s, estimated from what he observed as he wrote and fought against the slave trade, pr primarily the Arab slave trade of East Africa, that for every slave who made it to the slave markets in, on the coast, 10 died on the way. Uh -huh. 10 to 1. And he had the counts to back it up. Now, modern historians have looked at the records and tried to examine it, and this is a big, big issue in African-American studies and African historical studies. You know, how many people were actually killed and maimed uh, in the slave trade? And it's impossible to know. But conservative estimates show that, would agree that for every one slave who came to the West, about two died or were killed in the process. Those who went into the Middle East and into Southern Asia probably more like 2.5 to 3 to 1. 
So again, we're looking at millions and millions of people. So coming out of this history of slavery and colonialism and neo-colonialism, we find that these were periods of history where Africa was subjected to a domination based on racism, pure and simple <coughs> racism. It was an economic factor. It was easier to make money selling slaves. Were there Africans involved in the slave trade? Of course there were. But that doesn't change anything, really. It's an evil, corrupt system that impacted the continent of Africa by, by draining millions of lives, creative, strong lives, young people primarily, fertile young women primarily. And it devastated the continent. And the impact is still felt today. Then, of course, came the colonial period. Again, the British, the French, the Germans, the Belgians, the Portuguese, setting up their realms of influence. 1885, the Berlin Conference, the carving up of Africa. Of course, no Africans attended that conference. It was just the European powers deciding, everybody move in from the coast. And what you can occupy, just inform the other nations, and it's yours. King Leopold of Belgium set up his empire in what is today the Democratic Republic of Congo, Central Africa. Mark Twain called him a greedy, bastardly old goat. He's personally responsible for the deaths of over 10 million Africans. If you couldn't bring in the quota of rubber, your left hand was cut off. Now this is not Islamic. This is Belgian Christians doing this. This is in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, this is what caused Conrad to write his novel, Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness. You want to read a disturbing, disturbing personal account. Heart of Darkness. So again, the, the colonial period was not just some benign, you know, let's bring Africans into modern history, let's establish some hospitals and schools and administrative systems. No, it was a very, very negative experience. Again, the impact is still being felt today. The first genocide of the 20th century was not in Nazi Germany. It was in Namibia. The Germans killed over 200,000 Herero people, annihilated them, intentionally annihilated them. Adolf Hitler refers to it in Mein Kampf as his inspiration. Mm -hmm. This is how you deal with people who need to be eliminated. The Germans did the same thing in Tanzania during the Maji Maji revolt of the early 1900s and killed over 200,000 again there. Algeria, you've heard of the Algerian war, the French and the Algerians, yeah. Went on for years and years. Over a million people killed in less than two decades. And that's when many of us in this room were young. This is post-World War II with Ben Barka and Boumediene. Absolutely. And it went on for years and years and years, even turning the French against each other. Sometimes the French drew their maps in those days of France, traditional France as we think of it, and then Algeria also with the French map on it. Vive la France. C'est la France. All of this is France. What did the Algerians have to say about that? So this is not distant, distant history. This is recent history. The Mau Mau Rebellion in Kenya that the British referred to as the Troubles. Concentration camps were established. 
Over 20,000 Kenyans died. I've met Kenyans who lived in those camps as children, and they watched their parents and grandparents starve to death. The British did this in the 1950s. They did not want to give up power. FDR pressed Churchill. <clears throat> kind of reminds me of something just recently, but on the, you've heard of the, you remember the Casablanca conference between Churchill and FDR. Well, FDR passed through the Gambia, a West African country, on his way to Casablanca. And he saw the terrible conditions there. And when he met with Churchill, he said, you need to do something about this. You Brits, you're responsible for this. And, and Elliot, the son of FDR, said that he had never seen his father so upset about anything. Nothing in American politics had ever upset him that much. And he started pressing Churchill that after this war is over, we must bring freedom, and it starts with the British Empire. You must dismantle your empire. India. You want to watch an interesting, um, interesting clip? Go to YouTube, and uh, I think I saw a piece of chalk. Let me write this name. Look up, Dr. Shashi Tharoor, an Indian scholar, historian, and politician. Look up his debate at the Oxford Union a couple of years ago. Absolutely fascinating how he takes the British and their former empire to task that those who would argue that these colonial times were just benign, no, they were not, they were not. The British, for example, used very openly the system of divide and rule, uh, graft and corruption, the abuse of power, political trauma, spiritual and economic abuse. These were institutionalized in the, in the colonial systems. The Europeans came with their Western political and social and economic values, introduced them, and imposed them in the most corrupted forms possible. It, you have to study African history to see it. But the colonial period was not Tarzan swinging through the jungles. It was development, but development to benefit Western countries and companies and international companies and trading companies. These institutions were undeveloped for the local people, intentionally undeveloped. Forced labor was used, debts were passed on, imposed governance. The Cold War, of course, messed everything up. This, this was a time of exploitive governance. And sometimes we wonder why African countries have had so much difficulty after independence during the 1960s and 70s. Why have African countries struggled so much to come to terms with some form of democracy <clears throat> excuse me, and to establish themselves and find peace and development because no proper system of government was ever implemented in those countries. It was top-down power, abusive power. The rail and road systems were developed but only to benefit the international companies, not the local populations. Never. And even when the European powers pulled out, as the French did in the country of Guinea, they destroyed often everything, even breaking the windows out of the government offices, burning all the records. Yeah, democracy. It's great, isn't it? And yet, with all of this history of slavery and oppression and racism, all the negatives of colonialism and neo-colonialism, somewhere along the line, something very powerful has taken place in terms of faith. I don't know how to understand it other than the work of the Spirit. Because who in the world 
would want to take or accept the faith of these un-Christ-like oppressors, the slave masters, the slave traders. Who would want to take that faith? And yet something happened. A seed was planted. And in the midst of all of this vulnerability and, and weakness comes something very viable, very powerful. And that's amazing to look at. In the midst of this perceived weakness, we find a manifest strength. And Jesus talks about this and the blowing of the winds, the working of the Spirit, in the Beatitudes where he teaches us about meekness and humility. In Luke chapters 9 and 10, when he sent out his disciples, he sent them out in vulnerability. Don't take two sets of clothing. Don't take any extra money. Don't take any food. Just go. I remember teaching missions at ACU and talking with young missionaries. I said, are you willing to go like that? Some were. Most would say, mm, no. I said, maybe that's our problem. Because we've built much of our Western missions, especially in Africa, we've built it on the backs of prosperity, of elitism. And then having been a missionary in West Africa for many years, I've seen it there. I've, I've seen it in my own life. The expectation of I'm different, I'm separate. Uh, I have the right to live a certain style regardless of how local people live. <clears throat> It's power and prestige and prosperity speaking. That's not how Jesus sent out his disciples. That's not how Jesus lived. You see, sometimes with, with power and wealth, we can just get the ball rolling and we get the momentum. And yeah, there's a lot we can do with those things. But you begin to wonder, is it, is it durable? Is it going to stand? Will it stand the test of time? I don't know. God is the judge. He knows our hearts. But along the way, the seeds of the gospel have been sown in such an amazing way that, the, again, the statistics are just uh, unbelievable at times. By 2060, more than four in ten Christians are expected to live in sub-Saharan Africa, as we talked about a moment ago. And you see from 2015 up to, this is projecting up to, what, 2060, you see the percentages adjusting and dropping. As Christianity, if it continues its decline in the Western world, we see it rising in Africa. These are the trends, if they continue, if the spirit's wind keeps blowing in that way. And we'll go through just a few of these. Look at the percentage of Christian uh, population in 1900 as compared to 2000. In Congo Zaire, or Democratic Republic of Congo, 1.4% of the people were Christians in 1900. In 2000, 95% of the people were Christians. Now, it's a war-torn country. It makes you wonder, well, if they're Christians... Why don't they get along with each other? Well, people could ask us the same thing, right? Uh, Angola, 0.6% of the population in 1900 were Christian. Now, well over 90%. And you see some of these countries with the high percentages of, of Christian population. And most of this has come within the last few decades. Here are a few more. Um, countries like Ghana, uh, where I live, about 55% of the population. Uganda is 88%. Again, these statistics are a few years old. They're still, if anything, they're in most countries, they're a little bit higher now. Uh, so the trends are there. Again, the big picture, looking at the bigger picture, we can see that this is changing. Bruce Gordon says, a century ago, the image of the average Protestant was educated, American, British, or German, middle class, and white. Today, the average Protestant is more likely to be Ugandan, Chinese, or Brazilian, and possibly quite poor. 
So Christianity has changed. The average Christian has changed. It's not, we're not white Westerners anymore. Um, well, we'll go on to this. Um, is Islam's statistical center of gravity. Down through the centuries, if you look at the people, the Islamic peoples of the world, and you get that center of gravity, uh, you know, where, where, do you get the, where do you balance out the population, more or less, to make it simple? Well, you can see down through the centuries, it has stayed pretty much in the Middle East. About as many Muslims are this way as are this way. But look at the same study for Christians, or for Christianity. Christianity started in the Middle East, in Palestine, in Jerusalem, and you can see through the centuries, of course, the center became Europe. But now, look where it has headed. The statistical center of, of gravity of Christians, the populations, are Brazil and Africa, and then across to, to East Asia. So it's centering more back into, into Africa, which was one of the early centers, as we talked about. Well, for the sake of time, we won't look at um, all of these. These slides have to do with the um, immigration. One in five or more adults in Senegal, Ghana, Nigeria, and South Africa say they plan to move to another country. Mm -hmm. Immigration. You know, if you study human history, we've always migrated. We've never said, where do you think we all came from? Almost everybody in this room, we all came from Europe. Some, are still, some of you are still there. <laughs> you know, we migrate, we move, humans move. And you can't stop it. No wall stops this. It's going, we're going to move, and Africans are moving. The statistics are really interesting to look at. It disturbs a lot of people. Uh, but if you look at it from the broader historical uh, view of things, this is natural. This is what happens uh, when people are scattered abroad. Well, uh, moving on, all denominations in Africa are larger than they were at one time. Communal role of churches, the Pentecostal charismatic movement. Why has that been so successful in Africa? Why the Pentecostal churches, charismatic churches, so successful? I don't know, but you can see some consistencies and patterns. A message of power in times of weakness, transcendent messages, emphasis on the spirit. Yeah, emphasis on the spirit. The acceptance of mystery in the gospel. The anti-colonial message of many of the traditional African traditional churches. Freedom movements and African independent churches. For example, in northern Ghana, uh, the time that I lived and worked in Ghana, in a period of 15 years, I saw just the churches of Christ. I mean, other denominations were going through the same growth, but just the churches of Christ in northern Ghana go from three congregations to over 1,500 congregations in 15 years. Just an explosion of growth. And I'm not, I'm not talking about little handfuls of people. These were congregations of anywhere from 100 to 500 people, entire villages. Sometimes we would go and preach and spend a few days, and then we start baptizing, and it would take two or three days to baptize everybody. Just so many people. And you know, you begin to think, well, hmm, I got this thing figured out. Yeah, I know what I'm doing here. And then you hear down the road that some other church went to another village, and the entire village became Baptist, or Church of Pentecost, or Roman Catholic, or it was almost like whoever got there first. The people were ready. They were open. The spirit was moving and working. Uh, Ghana as a whole is a small country, about the size of the state of Missouri. 
Again, in 25 years of, of living and working there, we saw the churches of Christ go from about 100 congregations to almost 5,000. So explosive growth in the 1980s and 90s. What was the secret? Really no secret. The moving and working of the Spirit of God. Some of the themes that African churches have picked up and emphasized gospel themes have been the theme of deliverance, of salvation as healing and wholeness. Not, not simply salvation as getting away from hell, escaping punishment. But the gospel message is a message of the wholeness of life. It's about community. It's about that, that my life should reflect my faith and my trust and my allegiance. And these, these messages resonate very deeply in African societies. The communal aspects of faith and life and victory over darkness. Creativity alongside measured conformity. Many of my African friends and colleagues and theologians have, have talked to me about how West African cultures tend to look for patterns. You know, we Westerners often like to look at things and figure out how does it work. We're interested in the process. Many West African cultures are not so much concerned about the process, but just does it work? You know, does it work? If it works, get involved, get engaged, get it on your side. You'll figure it out later. You know, we tend to stand back and want to analyze and get into the technology of things, which is not bad, but does it work? And then adapt it is, is a general cultural, um, you know, value. So they're very creative looking for these patterns, looking for principles, but yet the ultimate test doesn't work. Uh, showing initiative in the midst of repression, resilience and trust in the midst of instability and rapid change in life's precarious nature. As you know, as it's well documented and recorded in the media, the images we have of Africa are usually negative images. War, starvation, disease, and those things are there, yes. Living in the tropics anywhere is difficult. The laws of thermodynamics, the hotter things are, the more quickly they decay. Well, that works in the tropics, let me tell you for sure. So how do people adapt? How do you live with that? Um, and what have people, how have people evolved and emerged in their cultures with these uh, adaptabilities? Well. The gospel offers people solid hope in the midst of a dangerous and threatening world. And Africa has been through a lot. Slavery, oppression, colonialism, neo-colonialism, being cards on the table during the Cold War between the Soviet bloc and the Western bloc. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? You're not on our side, we'll have you overthrown. That's what happened to President Kwame Nkrumah, the first president of Ghana. The US CIA overthrew him because we were afraid he was too Marxist. Similar stories are told over and over again. So we have this pattern of, of political chaos, of colonialism to the rise and establishment of nation states, the boundaries of which were never allowed to just evolve and grow naturally and historically, but they were based on the colonial system. People put together into evolving nation states who were not naturally connected, who had not historically worked together given a political system was, that was not theirs. And they had seen the worst types of those systems put in use. Top-down power, abusive corruption. Well, what type of politics do we expect them to play? Eventually emerging into one-party states, trying to hold stability, trying to hold things together. 
that inevitably meant military coups. Mm. The military would intervene. Mm -hmm. Now, thankfully, in the 1990s up till now, many African nations are beginning to emerge out of that cycle into exploring new forms of democracy, more culturally adapted forms of democracy. Well, you can't, democracy is not something you just give people on a plate and say, here, take it. It doesn't, you can't just fill in the blanks. It has to grow over time, it has to emerge and, and evolve. But in the midst of all of this, Christianity has come along, been accepted by huge numbers of people, and they recognize Christianity as a mobilization to action. So they've seized on the themes of redemption and deliverance and healing, plus the strong communal nature of we are, rather than I am. Out of this, the spirit has and is molding a unique blend of faith and vulnerability in the midst of vulnerability and a new center from the margins. Just as Jesus always taught us in the Gospels, he brought the marginalized to the middle of the story. And that's what we see in Africa. The weakest, most marginalized, most oppressed part of the world in the last few hundred years is emerging as the center of Christian faith. Now, doesn't that sound like the gospel? Mm -hmm. The weak will be strong. God will show us what he does. In your weakness, I am made strong, the Lord says. Not by might, not by power, by my spirit, says the Lord, Zechariah. So we're watching it. We're seeing it right before our eyes. An amazing shift in movement, a renewal, an adaptability. Well, Africa is not only the center of growing Christianity, it is also a center of growing moderate Islam. Uh, in West Africa in particular, there's some old, old Islamic traditions, such as the Jakhanke, uh, who are very, very moderate peaceful uh, Muslims in their theology and in their, um, their lifestyles. Uh, the Murids, some of the Sufi Tariqas are very, very uh, prominent in West Africa and North Africa. And these are very moderate voices, very scholarly voices that much of the Islamic world has ignored over the last few centuries. These voices are beginning to come out. I'm working with some friends in Ghana, both Muslims and Christians, who are we're trying to establish a center of dialogue where we can bring these moderate voices together. It's, it's at an academic level to start with, but the academic level filters down into the local communities to revive some of these more moderate voices like Mohammed Taha of Sudan, who was executed by the government of Sudan back in the 1980s because of his moderate interpretation of Islam. And that Muslims and Christians have nothing to disagree about because we all come from the same source. He was persecuted and put to death for that, but his voice and others can carry on. Well, in all of this growth, in all of this uh, expansion, are there negatives? Of course, there tends to be a strong measure of triumphalism among many Christians in Africa. I'm right and you're wrong. My church is better than your church. Imagine that. Uh, you know, I don't think any of us in this room can really imagine any Christians thinking like that. Overconfidence in systems of doctrine uh, and church loyalty and allegiances. It leads a bit to triumphalism sometimes, and that can be quite negative. Competitiveness can often lead to a lack of mercy. Commercialization uh, of the gospel, merchandising of faith, people using the power of the gospel often to enrich themselves 
Well, of course, we have no problems like that in the Western world. Uh, <clears throat> just turn on your television. Um, and power dynamics. Um, sometimes misplaced spiritual values can lead to abuse. Um, but again, these are normal. Study Christian history of any time period. Study any religious history of human, of human history, and you'll find these same tendencies and abuses because these are human weaknesses. And they are to be dealt with uh, by local people. But you know, when we look at this growing and expansion of the spirit, resistance is futile. And what do I mean by resistance? Who would resist this? Well, some would try to resist it um, by trying to control it. By trying to say, no, 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 no. It's, if it's not this, this, and this, then it's heresy. <clears throat> well, Christians have long fought the battles about heresy. Long, long, long centuries, our entire history, we've been fighting the battles of heresy and, and truth and theological soundness and so forth. But it seems to me in the last couple of decades or so that externalized assistance is less and less relevant for Africa. African Christians need less and less aid and assistance. It needs to be focused. It needs to be sharply focused. And we need partnerships in our relationships. But it's an interesting thing that I notice today whenever I'm in West Africa, I've seen it in East Africa and Southern Africa as well, and that is African churches that are very independent look down on African churches that are still dependent on Western sources and will preach against them and talk about them as you do not have the strength of the Spirit. You're relying on the foreigners. You're relying on the former oppressors. Now, they might not say that in the presence of foreigners, but believe me, it is said. It is said in churches of Christ throughout Africa as well. It's time for the Americans to leave us alone. They said, well, well, they take our money and they take our support. <clears throat> Wouldn't you? Sure. I've heard this said so many times. Take the fool's money. They'll get on the plane and go home. We'll take the money and do the Lord's work. Now, that sounds a little strong, and that is a very strong statement. But I don't know, but what, maybe we kind of do the same things too. Especially when we're promoting something and we don't talk about the negatives involved in this project or program. We only talk about the positives because we know that's what donors want to hear. Are we really being faithful in that? I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, join in or get out of the way kind of seems to be the message here from many of my African colleagues. Join in or get out of the way. And I, I don't want to paint too broad of a picture here, and I, I certainly don't want to give the impression that African brothers and sisters don't appreciate help and cooperation. Of course they do. But cooperation, true partnerships, I was never so proud in my life as the day that a Ghanaian uh, board of directors over a couple of social projects stood up to their American counterparts and said, thank you, but no thank you. We will do this and trust the Lord to provide because the American board was trying to tell them what to do, trying to control the process and handling of finances 
through America. Money was coming in from all over the world for these children's homes and schools and this and that. The Americans wanted it all to come through them. And so I asked that American board, when I was asked to intervene, I said, why do you want it all to come through you? So that we'll know what they're getting. I looked at one of them on the board and I said, how much money do you make? He said, it's none of your business. I said, you're right, it's none of my business. And how much money they get and handle is none of your business. You either work as partners, which means you have to account to your African partners as you expect them to account to you. Brothers and sisters, this boat has already sailed. And this is going to be happening more and more and more as the Spirit guides and empowers his church. Well, some have said this is the age of the Spirit. I don't know if you've ever done much reading of a lady named Phyllis Tickle. I would encourage you to read the works of Phyllis Tickle. She's passed away now. But she tells us we are in the age of the Spirit, the emergent time. New things are happening. She said about every 500 years this happens in Christian history. About every 500 years or so, Christianity sort of stands up and shakes itself out like an old dog and tries on something new. And we're due for another 500-year reformation, change, emergent form, and it's happening around us. And, and one of the ways that's being uh, shown and demonstrated and done is the renewal of Christianity, as Kwame Bediakwa, a, Ghanaian, a late Ghanaian theologian, says, what we're seeing in the world today is the renewing of Christianity as a non-white, brown religion. We're seeing Christianity back to its African and Middle Eastern roots. It's getting back to the brown, brown people. And again, that frightens some people. Why does it frighten? Why does it threaten? We should rejoice, lift ourselves, and want to catch some of that wind as well. But you know, the same wind that can fill the sails and sail the ships can also knock down some pretty big trees. And sometimes the Spirit knocks down the trees around us uh, so that he can get to our sails. Well, let me get to a couple of things finally. And uh, hopefully somebody has a comment you'd like to make. Life in the Spirit is always about transitions, transformations, and transcendence. Prophetic voices. God's people have always listened for prophetic voices. Living voices. Not just scripture, but living voices. And the African churches, I think, are demonstrating this. In that they're not just about scripture, as powerful and as wonderful as that is. But they're about life. Faith has to be real. It has to be about my life and what is real and workable. That it's not just about theory and theology, but the real aspects of life, as Jesus taught us. Questioning and established doctrines and positions and assumptions. Definitions of faith in African churches must not simply be mirrors reflecting the West. It's time for, and more and more time, for African theologians. And if you spend time in a room full of African theologians, you'll see that. Again, that ship has already sailed. Big time. It's way out at sea. Deep, deep theology, relevant theology, theology that's very practical, theology that in some cases is very different from how we normally think about things here in the West, but it's real. Freshly interpreting the living word. The Lutheran World Federation held its 500th year anniversary just recently. You remember? 500th anniversary of Martin Luther posting 
mm. hammering, whatever the right, thesis. Right. Do you know where they celebrated their 500th anniversary? The Lutheran World Federation, Namibia. Mm -hmm. mm. Because there are more Lutherans in Africa than anywhere else. Wow. They celebrated in Namibia. And they used the words of Martin Luther as their rallying cry when they overthrew the apartheid system imposed on them from South Africa. Mm -hmm. And generating from the marginalized. This is the way of Jesus. The poor, the needy, the naked, the hungry, that which we despise, that which we give our cast-offs and hand-offs to, are now our teachers. I've been telling the folks at ACU, tell the folks here at Pepperdine have given a chance. I've mentioned it to a few folks at Lipscomb. If you don't have African professors on your staff and in your faculty, you better get them. That's the future of Christianity. That's the future. There's a team of Ghanaian evangelists right now working in Canada on a, a several-week campaign financed by Churches of Christ in Canada, I mean in Ghana, to send evangelists to Canada. And that's just Churches of Christ. And believe me, we're way behind what most denominations are doing in this. Way behind. So if we do not honor the divine indwelling, how can we recognize it elsewhere? African churches lead us away from the dualism of Plato, of simple body and spirit, as we have interpreted it in modern philosophy. That the body and spirit are not competitive entities, with spirit being somehow superior. Africans teach us to rejoin the multiple layers of reality, creation in high-definition technicolor, which is probably what Plato meant originally anyway. Alex, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. But the diversity the African churches teach us, embracing the wholeness of body and spirit. Spirit knows spirit, Apostle Paul said. As African Christians struggle to find ways of recognizing and respecting the dignity of the human body, they lead us away from a simplistic view of faith as moralistic piety that we Western Christians have tended to take up the last hundred years or so, that it's all about the do's and don'ts, the ins and outs, this moralistic piety. African Christians are saying, no, it's much more than that. It's the here and now, the discovery of goodness and transcendent hope. Well, we don't have much time. But I do appreciate World Christian Broadcasting for being builders of bridges, of reaching out to the world, networking energies, providing platforms of proclamation. And World Christian Broadcasting, in my experience, you have emphasized, and I hope continue to emphasize, very clear messages of hope with expectations of the Spirit's winds of empowerment, but you offer minimal messages. They're not overpowering, detailed messages. It's about Christ. Planting a seed and encouraging people to move and let the Spirit form them and make them as Christians even if they look nothing like us, even if they worship nothing like we worship, even if they interpret scripture nothing like we do, which you know, of course, they will because of our roots of faith in, in, and in the word. But let the spirit work in this embodiment of adventurous faith and submission to the spirit's guidance. Follow the winds, Jesus said. Resistance is futile. Thank you very much. Thank mm -hmm. you.